It's good to be with you today. Golly, I tell you what, it isn't great looking outside, like AJ said, but it is great looking up in here. Amen. You look good today. Give yourselves a hand for just being amazing. <clears throat> Come on, brag on yourself for a little bit. Can I tell you that if you don't look in the mirror and think, man, that's an awesome person looking back at me, then you might think, oh, you know, that's, that's uh, arrogant. No, that's biblical, right? Uh, the, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship. I like how, I think it's the New Living Translation says it. It says, we are God's masterpiece, the work of his hands created in Christ Jesus to do good work. So when you look at yourself in the mirror, you should see. Now, I know the devil doesn't want you to see this. Come on, I'm not even preaching it, and I'm already preaching better than you're shouting, right? The devil doesn't want you to see it. The world doesn't want you to see it. But God Almighty, the one who made you, the one who formed you, the one who made all there is and holds all there is all together, looks at you and says that right there, that's the best work I can do. And I want you to let that sink in for just a moment because that's a big deal. That's a big deal. We look at sunsets and we say, oh, wow, God, you're so amazing. God looks at sunsets and he sees ordinary. Come on. Come on. We look at, we look at images from the new James Webb telescope and we see stars and galaxies and all kinds of amazing things out there beyond what our, our eyes can see. And we say, wow, that is amazing. And God says, oh, that's, that's nothing. I did that when, you know, I just threw that together. You know, you know somebody's coming over to your house and you, you try to make some brownies and you put all this work into them, right? And somebody comes in and he compliments them and you say, oh, I just threw it together, right? God says, I just threw that together. But he looks at you. Somebody, like, I, I feel the Lord in this, sincerely. Come on, put your hand on your chest and just remind yourself of who you are in Christ. He looks at you and he sees a masterpiece. He sees a job well done. He doesn't see a job finished because you are a person in progress, right? But he sees what he's making and he says, man, that's good. When, when God created humanity in Genesis, he said it's good not once but twice. He said it's very good. So can we just stop right now and just thank the Lord for his affirmation in our lives? Father, I just thank you that you don't look at us and see mistakes and failures. You don't look at us and see sins and problems. God, you look at us and see a masterpiece. You see the works of your hands. And God, I pray over LifeHouse. I pray over every individual, every family, every child in this room today. That God, that we would be, that we would gain a correct image of ourselves in light of who you are and who you made us to be. That we would walk in our God-given identity in ways like we never have before. Not in arrogance, not in not in a, like a cocky spirit, so to speak, but God in a confidence that is birthed not in what we have to offer, but rather birthed in who you are and what you've said and what you've done. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Come on, give the Lord another good praise offering today. Take your Bible and go to James chapter 2. We're back in James today. And 
Yeah, okay, I'm glad you're excited about it because I was preparing this message this week and I was not excited about this message. It's not a bad message, it's not a hard message even, it's just something that I don't think I would have ever preached uh, on my own, uh, but that's why the Lord leads us sometimes to go through books of the Bible is so that we don't preach the same five messages a hundred different ways over and over again. That's what happens, right? I don't know if you've ever been to those churches or heard of those. And listen, I'm, no, I'm, not, uh, I'm, I'm just as liable to do those things as well. Where we say the same thing, uh, we just say it differently. Every preacher and every pastor has got their passion points, right? And I have mine. Uh, I love talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom within us. I love talking about uh, who we are in Christ. Uh, but if I can be honest with you, I don't love talking about favoritism and prejudice. Just not my thing. Like, I, uh, but it needs to be discussed because it's in God's word. And if it's in God's word, then it needs to make its way into our hearts. So James chapter 2, before, before we begin reading the word, uh, today's Family Sunday. That's why there's a bunch of youngins up in here. Yeah, give it up. Come on, give, it, give a good praise the Lord for our children today. Um, I looked at Kristen midway through worship and I said, this is not a kid message at all. Uh, and she said, it'll be okay, which in other words means you can't change anything now, so you might as well roll with it. Um, so I, I'll make a deal with you. You help me preach and I'll preach faster, right? You give me some good amens even when I don't deserve them and I'll move a lot quicker than I need to move, okay? And so uh, that way you'll save some of your Cheerios and your iPad or iPhone batteries won't be completely dead by the time church is over. Uh, but I am so thankful to have our children. I, you know, looking at my kids, I saw Julia raising her hands in worship. And I'm telling you, there is nothing that makes a father's heart more happy uh, than to see his children loving on our Heavenly Father. So I'm thankful for Family Sunday. I'm thankful for our amazing kids ministry team that has developed our, our children uh, and, it, and is working in our children's lives to see them become passionate followers of Jesus themselves. Amen. Amen. Also, before this service is over, we are excited to celebrate as three individuals uh, make public their faith in Christ in water baptism. Come on. Give it up for them. Greg. Come on, Greg. That's, that's my boy, Greg Vaught. His son, Brantley, and then Connor Squibb. Yeah. Connor looks so excited right now. I mean, he looks like he could just jump out of his skin. He's so, he's so enthusiastic. He's always that excited, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Brantley and Greg and Connor, we're so excited for what the Lord is doing in your lives, and we're so excited to celebrate in a few moments this step of faith that you're taking. James chapter 2. This is what he says, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read a lot of scripture today, not just to start with, but all throughout. That's how you know it's going to be a good sermon, because I'm going to talk less and let the Bible talk more. Verse number 1, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting and James is, is talking about a gathering of believers. But I want you to, to go beyond just the thought of a church setting and maybe even think about this in the place, of, place where you do work. 
the place where you do business, okay? I want you to go beyond just uh, a church setting into any avenue of life where you might encounter people that you don't already have relationship with, okay? She says, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. James is, is leaving nothing up for the imagination here, right? He's, he's, he's putting it pretty plain. And he goes on and he says, If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, You can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Evil motives. Hold on to that phrase for just a moment. Evil motives. And he goes on and he says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? you got to go back. James is literally pulling from Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For they shall see God. And, and he says... Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Verse number six, but you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law. Everybody say royal law. Royal. It's good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. We might call it the golden rule sometimes, right? Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Man, James, I, and listen, if, you're, if you are a fan of the book of James, what we love about it is also what we hate about it. Like, we don't have to wonder, what does James mean here? You know, when we read Paul, you know, you read Paul and it's kind of like, wow, okay, I don't get it, but cool. When you read James, it's like, yeah, I got you, bro. I know exactly what he's saying, right? He goes on in verse 10. He says, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 6, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 11, he says, For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but don't commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. I'm going to read that again. I think that's worth repeating. There will be no mercy. Let me say it like this. There will be no grace for those who have not shown grace to others. Come on, if you want to be a person, and listen, we all love getting grace from other people, right? But do you know why it's so hard for us sometimes to give grace to others? It's because we judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their actions. See, I know what I meant to say. I know what I meant to do. I know what I meant by that sarcastic, snarky remark. You know, I didn't mean it like it sounded, uh, right? Come on, I've, I fall into that. I mean, that's happened to me like today, probably 10 or 12 times. Um, <laughs> what'd you say? I said, I don't know what 
You don't. <laughs> but we judge others by what we see, right? By what we hear. We judge ourselves by what we meant to say or meant to do. James says, if you don't show mercy, there's no mercy for you. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that we would hear your voice and that we would be changed and transformed by what you speak to us and over us. God, I pray that you would help me to surrender myself to you, to be used by you. And, and God, that as we leave this place, that we would be more passionate for you, more loving of our neighbor, and more encouraged to share the gospel than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen. So James, once, a, once again, he's not, he's not leaving a lot up for the imagination. He is saying, basically, if you show favoritism to somebody over somebody else, that is sin. So I think, it's, I think it, it would do us well to, to talk about what is favoritism. What, what actually does it mean to show favoritism? And so I want to start off by saying this is what favoritism isn't. Because I think we have a wrong misunderstanding of what favoritism is when James talks about it. Favoritism is not uh, affection for somebody that you have something in common with. <clears throat> favoritism is not friendship, right? It, just because you love your friends and that you, are, you strive to be there for your friends in a way that you may not would be for a stranger or somebody that you don't know or somebody that you don't do life with doesn't mean that you are showing favoritism. What it really means is you're a good friend, right? Because we can't do everything for everybody, right? And so James isn't saying, listen, there can't be people in your life that you love uh, with affection more than you love others. That's, that's not true at all because if it were true, that would mean Jesus were a sinner. Because Jesus had circles of friends that he shared more and more with, right? Uh, we know that at different times, Jesus had over 5,000 disciples, not including women and children. People who followed him to listen to him speak. We know from there that Jesus had much closer uh, disciples numbered in around the 120 range. And then from there... We know Jesus had 12 disciples that he did life with, right? You know, statistically, uh, for us as human beings to maintain more than 12 close relationships is pretty much impossible. Uh, really, more than about six is very difficult. But for those of you who are extremely extroverted, you might can maintain 12 close relationships. I do well to maintain three, okay? Uh, I'm the opposite of an extrovert, right? Uh, and, then, and then from the 12, Jesus had the three. He had Peter, James, and John. Those are the ones he was most close to. And so James is not saying, hey, uh, you can't have friendships with certain people that you spend more time with than other people. You can't have common interests uh, with people and talk about certain things and therefore neglect other people that you don't have those interests with. If so, then Jesus would be a sinner according to James. But that is not at all what he is saying. What he is saying is, and let me define favoritism for you, favoritism is having evil and selfish motives that assume a person can give you what God can't. 
And so let me, let me talk about it like this. So we're talking, you know, James is kind of talking about church services. So let's just say a person walks in of influence. A person walks in who we know to be wealthy. Uh, and right behind that person, a person walks in who doesn't have influence and who obviously isn't wealthy. If I, as the pastor of LifeHouse, were to go to the wealthy person and be like, hey, I am so glad you are here today. Come up here. Let me give you the best seat. AJ, get out of the way. Uh, uh, Peyton Manning, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of a name that would be influential in East Tennessee and a lot of other places for that matter. Peyton Manning is here in service with, with us today. Peyton Manning, you know, maybe, I don't know where he lives, but let's just to say he lives at Oak Ridge just for the fun of this sermon. And, you know, we want Peyton Manning to become a member of LifeHouse. I, as the pastor, if I'm thinking, wow, Peyton Manning, I bet his tithe check is going to be pretty nice, right? You know? Like, hey, we need a new sign, Peyton. What you think about that? Um, and, and so, we're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm buttering up Peyton Manning. And then right behind Peyton Manning walks in somebody who's not Peyton Manning. I don't know. Who obviously doesn't have a lot of money or a lot of influence. And that person walks in and they come sit right near Peyton Manning. And I, as the pastor, I go and I'm like, hey, bro, hey, hey. Um, you know, there's a great seat back there by Carlos with your name on it. <laughs> I don't know, for some of you, the best seat in the house is back there, right? Uh, some of you, it's definitely not up front. Uh, there's a good seat back there by Carlos. Um, or, you know, maybe it's a, a day where we're having a, a combined service and the place is really full. And I'm like, hey, you can, you can sit on the floor right over there. But Peyton, we've got here, we're going to even clear the next three seats out for you to put your, your stuff, right? Because that's, that's what we really want in church. We don't want to sit right beside somebody. We need spaces for our drinks and our purses and our, our other drinks <laughs> and our phones. Yeah, all the things, right? Our Bibles. How many drinks you got, girl? Um, And, and so that's an extreme example, right? But that's what James is using. He's using this example of an extreme situation to illustrate for us that, that what really favoritism, what really looks like, isn't so much about having friendships and loving people and doing things for people. It's about going to somebody with a motive that thinks they can do something for you that you're not taking to God instead. And at the same time, denying that same treatment to somebody else who you know can't do anything for you. And, and it's not just church, right? It, we, we could be guilty of that in any avenue of life. You know, maybe your job, right? You try to make connections with certain people that you work with because you know those people carry influence and they carry power. And if you can get in their good graces, they can help you get raises and promotions. But then there may be somebody else who doesn't have that. And so you deny them the same positive or the same favorable treatment because they can't do anything for you. Now, I would like to say that none of us are guilty of this. But the truth is, we're probably all a little more guilty of it than we would like to admit. We just don't see it from that extreme vantage point, right? But in our everyday life, it is so easy and so I don't know, almost unnoticeable to slip into those trends of giving certain people certain types of treatment because we want something from them and then treating others differently because we know they can't do anything for us. 
Can I tell you, though, it's just as unfair to the rich, influential person to treat them better because of what they have than it is to the poor person who can't help you because of what they can't do for you, right? It's just as unfair either way. And, and I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me about 15 years ago when I first stepped into ministry uh, and, and dealing with different people. And I, I just felt the Lord tell me one, one, one day, you don't have the right to pick and choose who you share the gospel with. You don't have the right to pick and choose who you show the gospel to. You don't have the right to pick and choose who you speak the gospel to. Because every soul matters to God, and therefore every soul should matter to me and you, right? I'm going to say that again. Every soul matters to God, and therefore every soul matters to me, and it matters to you. And when we show favoritism or we fall into the trap of any of those isms, right? We could talk about racism. We could talk about sexism, classism, classism being uh, rich or poor or middle class or whatnot, uh, even ageism, right? I've been really feeling discriminated against when I fill out forms online because I have to scroll so long to get to 1985. It used to just be a few clicks. <laughs> John says, uh, uh, you're guilty right now, brother. <laughs> 1985, right? <laughs> some of y'all think 1985 was a long time ago, uh, and some of you feel like it was just yesterday, I I'm sure. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. I have to, I need to apologize. I have been guilty of an ism up here, from the platform even. And, and I need to make an apology, and I, honestly, I just need to make it to the church. Uh, I have, for the longest time, picked on Android users. Um, yes. Yes. And... <laughs> And so I apologize. I have been guilty of phonism, right? <laughs> and so I have confessed my sin to the Lord. I have now confessed it to you. I have been forgiven in the name of Jesus. And um, I'm still going to keep my iPhone, though. Uh, uh, but I will not discriminate against those who have something against blue bubbles, right? Oh, man. But when we show favoritism or when we fall into any of these isms where we see ourselves as better than someone or we pursue favor with a person because of what they think they can offer us, we are living in opposition to what James called pure and genuine religion. If you go back up a couple of weeks ago in verse uh, 27 of chapter 1, James talks about pure and genuine religion is, is caring for the poor, caring for widows and orphans, right? And so when we, when we show favoritism at the expense of, of helping somebody that we don't favor, right, or loving somebody that can't help us, we are, we are living in opposition to pure and genuine religion because we all equally need God's grace, we all equally need God's mercy, but at the same time, we are all. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care if you're Billy Graham. I don't care if you're the Apostle Paul or even Irby, who's got to be one of the best men I know, right? We are all equally in need of God's grace and mercy. And I'm thankful. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that God does not play favorites, right? Because if he did, I wouldn't be on that list, or I know that. 
Each of my girls, I got two of them in here today, Julia and Olivia. Come on, can we celebrate these? Oh, they love getting the attention. Julia does. Julia says, go ahead, guys. Clap it up. Go ahead. <laughs> she ain't denying it. Um, but, you know, I tell my girls at different times, and sometimes I say it right to their face in front of the other two girls, you're my favorite. Yeah, yeah. And, and the truth is they all believe it because it's, it, they are all my favorite. I don't have a favorite. They're all my favorite, right? And can I tell you today, man, you were God's favorite. Uh, my father-in-law, who is the cheesiest, corniest man I know, uh, anytime he pulls into a parking lot and he gets a close space to the store, he says, ah, it's good to be God's favorite. And, uh, <laughs> and that is just the tip of the iceberg of the cheese right there. Uh, of my father-in-law. Please share this message with him. Uh, God doesn't play favorites because we are all his favorite. And I'm so glad he doesn't. Uh, and, and just like I tell my kids, they're my favorite, I express my favor to them differently. Because receiving God's favor and being God's favorite is not the same thing. You know, sometimes I give, I express favor to them as a reward for something that they've done, for something that they've accomplished. Sometimes I express my favor to them as, as, as uh, admiration for uh, what they're doing right now. Julia uh, just got our st the Star Student Award for the fourth grade class at Clinwood, right? Third grade, third grade, third grade. <laughs> it's going to be rough at my house this evening, guys. Um, and so we celebrated, right? We went and got ice cream. But they all got ice cream, yeah. Um, but if I want to show my favor to Julia, I buy her ice cream, 100%, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. If I want to show my favor to Olivia, I take her to Books a Million. Yeah. If I want to show my favor to Magnolia, I cook her a brisket. Yeah. It took us three tries, but we finally got a girl that knew how to eat. And God shows his favor to each and every one of us, right? And he shows it differently. And sometimes, I know this is not popular, but sometimes, let me tell you, it is based on reward. Yeah, God blesses you when you are faithful and obedient to him. There's no way around that. I don't care what scripture you try to pull out. It is going to be true that when you give yourself to the Lord, he will give himself to you, right? But that doesn't mean that you aren't his favorite or anybody else is less his favorite. Sometimes he expresses our favor to us in different ways. If God favored me the way he favored you, I would be like, Lord, I don't really want this, okay? Uh, and the same goes the other way around. Uh, God doesn't play favorites, and I'm so thankful he doesn't. But he does give favor. Uh, go to your Bible. I don't do this often, but go to Mark chapter 10. I want to I just read a, a story uh, that involves Jesus. Mark chapter 10 uh, and I'm just going to read this. I started to summarize it, but I decided I would just read the whole thing because it's, it's just worth, it's worth our time. It says, starting in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 17, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? Because Jesus knows that this man has an underlying motive, right? It would be as if I went to AJ and I said, hey, good buddy, good pal, you look great today. 
I think me and the girls are going to go to main event later. Um, you know, man, I tell you what, those shoes are fantastic, right? Now, uh, Jesus is, is calling this man out in the same way. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus cuts them off right then and there. Why are you calling me good? No one's good but God. Verse 19, Jesus says, But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Uh, you must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and your mother. And then I don't know how long Jesus would have kept talking. But the, but the guy cuts him off in verse 20. He says, teacher, okay, 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 the commandments. I know the commandments. The man replied, I have obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him, which is such a beautiful thing. Because even though this man has an underlying motive, and even though this man, uh, it, he is not living in God confidence, right? He is living in self-arrogance, okay? So all these things, Jesus sees that underlying in his heart, there's an insecurity within him. And, and Jesus has love, he has compassion for him. And he says, Jesus, or Jesus says uh, that he felt genuine love for him. And he says, this, there is still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them, but Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I just want to say this. You have to understand that what Jesus is implying, he's not telling you it's wrong to have money and to have stuff. Um, what he's saying is it's wrong for money and stuff to have you. And so for some people, hear me, it is wrong for them to have money and stuff. Like this man. Because this man, his identity came from his power and his possessions. And so for you, if identity comes with accomplishments, if identity comes from, from, from money and possessions, then Jesus might would even say to you, hey, maybe you need to part some of this stuff in your life because you are identifying too much with what you have and, and with the power and the possessions that you have. And here's the deal. It's really easy to become dependent on stuff, and I'm going to define stuff here in a moment, for your security and for your self-worth. It's really easy to become dependent on fill-in-the-blank for security and self-worth instead of God. And we all would put different stuff in that blank, right? Uh, you know, for some of us, maybe it is money, right? Maybe for you, it is easy to
to, to put uh, your faith in money and to, and to gain your self-worth and your security from money. For some of us, uh, maybe for you, you know, you've had a rough week or you've had a rough day and the way you make yourself feel better is you go to Amazon and you find something and you treat yourself, right? Knowing that in two to three business days, you are going to get a prize that's going to give you a dopamine spike and make you feel better about life when you see that USPS truck pull up in your front yard, right? Or FedEx or UPS or whatever. Can I, just, can I just be a pastor for just a moment? You know, for others of us, we get our, maybe not our self-worth, but we get our comfort from something like Little Debbie, right? Oh, he's stepping on toes today. We go, yeah, social, oh, come on, Paige, just preach it for me. We get, our, we get our phones out. I don't have mine with me. And, you know, we, we've had a long week. We've had a bad day. Or we just want to chill, right? And we just scroll social media and we waste two hours of time. Yet we can't spare 15 minutes to read our Bible. The average person spends over four hours on social media today. The average person reads less than two hours of scripture total in a given year. You know, maybe it's, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know, if, if life starts happening, right, it's so easy for me to go to Swiss cake rolls <laughs> and sit in front of a Netflix TV show and just veg out, right? And I'm not saying that any of these things are bad with, uh, in and of themselves. But why, what, why they become bad is how we use them and our motivation in using them. You know, oh, maybe it's not little Deb Debbie. Oh, this is, maybe it's Jack Daniels. I don't know. Maybe it's Miller Lite, right? Maybe, maybe it's a, a bottle of pills that you turn to to numb the pain to numb the feelings, to numb the anxiety, to numb the worry. And what God is saying and what Jesus would say is stop turning to Amazon, right? Stop, stop turning to, to Little Debbie. Stop turning to a bottle of pills or a bottle of liquor. Stop turning to a toxic relationship uh, with a person who has no desire for you except for your body to fulfill their own body's desires, right? Come on. And instead, take that pain, take that worry, take that need for comfort, take that need for, for joy, take that need for peace, take that need for relief to me and let me be the one who gives you what you need. You see, I have been a believer in Christ for, I'm doing the math right now, over 20 years. And since I first became a Christian, I heard stories and still to this day hear stories of incredible moves of God in foreign countries all around the world where revival will break out and last for months and years, where miracles will occur and where thousands will give their lives to Christ. And we're, you know, I've heard stories about bodies being healed, uh, not as the uh, exception, but as the norm, Right. And, and, and I've, heard, I've even heard stories about uh, the dead being raised back to life. And, and I notice when I, when I hear those stories, 
almost always those stories occur in nations uh, around the world that are, are characterized by being pretty poor. And, and here's the truth. When, when Jesus is all you have, you realize that Jesus is all you need. But see, Jesus isn't all we've got, right? We, and listen, nothing against medication, nothing against doctors. And, and listen, if you take medicine because of, 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 a, mental, of a mental issue, maybe, maybe you struggle with depression or anxiety, I hope you hear my heart. This isn't telling you that you need to throw those pills away and forget all that stuff. This is me telling you, hey, Jesus can help you, and if he chooses to help you through a prescription, and he chooses to help you through a psychiatrist, uh, then that's great as well. I hope you hear my heart when I say that. But there are many people who turn to those sort of things and they never even turn to God in the first place. Because Jesus isn't all we've got. Listen, when I'm struggling sometimes, and I'm telling you, I struggle sometimes. It is so easy for me to turn to junk food and to turn to things uh, on my phone that just numb the pain, that just make me forget about life and what's happening. And, and, and because Jesus isn't all I've got, sometimes I don't know and I don't realize that he's all I need. And I don't experience the move of God in my life because I keep turning to other things that they may for, for a moment fill the void but at best, they are temporary. It's like drinking salt water, right? You think you're getting what you need only to realize, number one, you're thirstier now than you were. And number two, it's been making you sick the whole time. You guys okay? This is why Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation. And he says, you're neither hot nor cold. And because you're lukewarm... I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to throw you up. You disgust me, is what he basically says. But do you know why they were lukewarm? You go on and you read about it in Revelation. Jesus says, it's because you think you are rich and have need of nothing. Listen, God does not respond to independence. Rather, God responds to dependence on him. And when we think, whether we, we actually think it or whether we just act it out in the way we live, live our lives, that God is, it can be replaced by a food or by a drink or by a medicine or by a person or by a TV show or by whatever it may be. At that point, God is saying, you think you are rich. You think you have what you need. But in fact, just like he told the Laodiceans, you were poor, you were miserable because you were filling up on these things that do not last. In fact, Jesus became poor for each of us. Paul says it like this in Philippians, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. The Pharisees and the people of Israel were looking for the Messiah. For several hundred years, they were looking for the heir of David that would come and reestablish the throne of David. And in this particular time in history, 
the Israelites and the Pharisees, they were looking for a man who would come and, and throw out the Roman occupation so that Israel would once, be, once again be established as a sovereign nation, as a sovereign kingdom. The problem, though, is that they were looking for a conquering king, not a suffering servant. And, you know, I read the Bible and I think to myself, man, these Pharisees, these Israelites, they're so dumb. How could they not listen to Jesus? How could they not have faith in Christ? How could they not see the things that he did and, and know that, man, he really must be God? And honestly, I think we give them a pretty unfair time because if I could go back 2,000 years and spend time in ancient Jerusalem and Galilee, would I be any different? Would I do a better job of recognizing who Jesus really was? And I think the best way to think about that is to fast forward to now, fast forward today. And Jesus tells us that what you choose to do for the least of these, you've done also unto me. So you might think, hey, if I could go back, I would be different than everybody else. I would do better. Well, you can't. But you can do better today. You, you can care for the least of these. And in fact, you were caring for Jesus himself. James, James says that when we keep the royal law, to honor, or rather to love our neighbor as ourself, that we are set free by that law. And the reason why it's called the royal law, the reason why James calls it the royal law, is because the king repeatedly said it over and over again. To love your neighbor as yourself. And if you go back and you see the origin of that, first of all, it goes back to Leviticus when God gave the law to Moses. But a man comes to Jesus and he says, what's the greatest command, right? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Or the second is just as important. And James says, if we don't do this, we are committing sin. If we don't love our neighbor as ourself, we are committing sin. We are then guilty of breaking the whole law. Now, James gives this really cool illustration. He says, you, you say, you know, I, I committed murder, but I haven't committed adultery, so I'm okay. No, James says, no, you're still a lawbreaker. Anybody in the room ever had jury duty? Anybody? You Bless you poor souls, right? I don't know. If you enjoyed it, that's cool. I did not. I've had it twice. How am I only 37 years old and I've had jury duty twice in two different counties, for that matter? I think God's picking on me. <laughs> Thankfully, though, I didn't get picked to actually serve. I showed up the morning of, and then uh, and I wasn't picked. And can I just tell you, uh, I have been not getting picked for stuff my whole life. <laughs> uh, and that was the first time I was really grateful, like, I didn't get picked. Uh, fifth grade dodgeball, not getting picked, didn't feel so bad in that moment. But let's just say you had jury duty, and there's a man sitting there, and he's on trial for murder. And, you know, just like he do, they do in the awesome court case movies and TV shows, he takes the stand for himself, and he says, Absolutely, I committed murder, but I have never cheated on my wife. You as the juror might say, Well, that's great. I'm sure she's happy about that. But you still committed murder, and you're still going to jail, right? James is saying, you, you, we take pride in ourselves too often, 
because we see all the right thing, or we we see all the things that we get right. When in reality, if you have broken any of God's laws, you've broken all of God's laws. And he says, when you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you have broken God's law as if you had, this is hard to hear, as if you had murdered somebody. Now, now, now hear me. Consequences to sin and breaking of laws are different, right? You know, if I leave church today, actually this has happened before, and I am driving to my house and I go a little fast, Literally, I've gotten a ticket on the way home after church before. That's how I just, I like to get where I'm going, right? But can I just tell you, getting a speeding ticket is not the same as robbing a convenience store, right? You're going to pay a different fine. You're going to pay a different penalty for each thing. But nonetheless, you've broken the law, and you, uh, and we are all still sinners in God's sight. And so James is saying, when you don't love your neighbor as you as yourself, you're breaking the law just as if you were doing something else that we would say, see as horrible. And James says it like this: If you break the law of not loving loving your neighbor as yourself, you're breaking the whole law. And he reminds us that this is the royal law. And if you remember, Jesus said. In this law, all of the other laws are fulfilled. So when we refuse to love our neighbor as ourselves, or let me say it like this, when we are guilty of favoring others and and neglecting others, favoring some because of what they can give us and what they can do for us, and neglecting others because we know they don't have anything to offer me, Jesus would say, you you have broken the most important law that there is to keep. Because in this law, all the other laws are fulfilled. And then he says something that's really controversial. I'm about to land this plane. You guys guys good? All, All the kids' house kids, you good? You good? You good? I didn't believe that, but okay. Seraphina's good. She's good. What's up? That's what she's doing. I told you a few weeks ago that James is often considered the most controversial book in the Bible. And it is. And it's fun. I love controversy. As long as it doesn't involve me. (laughs) Right? As long as I can just watch it from a safe distance. (laughs) And we're, we're, we're edging into it today. We won't go all in, but we're edging into it today. James says this in verse 12. He says, so whatever you say... Or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. The law that sets you free is the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You might say, oh, I've been saved by grace. I'm not, I'm not subject to judgment. Oh, really? Really? Here's the thing. True faith in Christ is evidenced by a changed life that reflects the life of Christ. And so you can tell me all day, every day, yeah, I've been saved. I've been saved. I've been washed in the blood, right? I've been made new again. I've been redeemed. But if your life doesn't look like a person who has been changed by the power of Jesus, then you're lying. 
You might be lying to yourself, but you're certainly lying to me, and you're lying to those around you. So a life that's been changed by Jesus will be evidenced by a life that looks like it's been changed by Jesus. So in that case, you will be judged. And in fact, you, you are being judged. Oh, we love to like throw out, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. Some of the, that's some of the only scriptures some people even know, right? <laughs> and there is context for that. There is, uh, there is, see, I don't think that we should judge the world who doesn't know Christ for not acting like they know Christ. When people get up in arms and throw fits over systems that were created by man, that are, that are served by man, especially men and women who, who haven't experienced the Jesus that I've experienced, I, don't, I, I understand that we may not like it and we may disagree with it, but it's no excuse to, 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 to have a fit over it because at the end of the day, how in the world am I supposed to expect people who haven't experienced Jesus to act like they have? But I do expect men and women of God who claim to have experienced Jesus to live like they have. Listen, if I see a brother or sister in Christ living in a way that is contrary to the life of Christ, and in love I confront them from their, for their ways, that's not judgment. That's love. That's care. That's compassion. Now, they may not like it, and I guarantee you I wouldn't like doing it. But it's necessary, right? And so James is saying, if your life doesn't look like it's been changed by Jesus, then it hasn't. And if your life doesn't put Jesus as Lord, then he's not. And if you don't live in a way that looks like you've been changed, then you haven't been changed. So we love others because we have received love. We, we love others. Now listen, we love others who can't do anything for us, right? So we got Peyton over here who's going to get treated maybe, you know, a little differently because I don't know how to talk around him versus somebody that I don't know that may, may not look like me, may be poor, may be whatever, but I'm going to treat them the same but not because I love them the same because God loves me even when I couldn't do anything for him. You see, this is, this is freeing. You, you need to hear this. You can't do anything that God needs you to do. Because God doesn't need anything. God's not depending on you. And I know that sounds in conflict to the, to the Great Commission, right? But at the end of the day, you and I have nothing to offer the Lord except ourselves. And even that, He doesn't need it. He chooses to need it. So anything God has ever needed from you was a choice, not a necessity. And so when I show love to others that, that can't do something for me, that's when I am most like Jesus because Jesus loved me even though I couldn't do anything for him. We would even love others, or we should even love others that we would consider an enemy, right? Because while we were enemies of God, Jesus came and gave himself for us. Paul says it like this in Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So we show mercy because we've been shown mercy. We give grace because we've been given grace. 
I think often we overestimate our goodness and we underestimate his grace. I'm going to say that again. There's a little bit of movement, so I want you to hear this. I think we often overestimate our goodness and underestimate his grace. Tim Keller said it like this. He said, this is the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. There's a story, I actually referenced it earlier, a man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the man says, as I said a moment ago, he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. And this man asks a question, it's a great question. He says, but who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Because Jesus, if my neighbor is literally my neighbor's, okay, cool. Good deal. If my neighbor, if my neighbors are people that I do life with on a regular basis, share common interests with, have friendships with, have relationships with, have affections for, yeah, I can get behind that. Deal. But Jesus tells a story as he asks that question. Now you know this story as the Good Samaritan. Let me give you a quick recap in case you have forgotten it. One day there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among robbers and thieves. And the robbers and the thieves, they began to beat this man and they began to steal from this man and they took everything he had. They even, the Bible says they even stripped him naked and they literally left him on the side of the road to die. And then a Levite on his way to worship at the temple walks by and he sees the man and the Levite so disgusted with the man's appearance and in such a hurry on his way to worship the Lord he goes to the other side of the road to avoid this person and then a priest on his way to worship God right he crosses the road as well he's on the street as well and he sees this man beaten naked bruised with nothing near death and he keeps on going because he has been sent on mission by God to go to the temple and offer sacrifice. And so I have to do what God has called me to do, and God has not called me to do that. And he goes on by and he leaves the man on the road to die. And then the Bible tells us that a Samaritan crosses the road. And at this point, you've got to remember that everybody's ears started to perk up as soon as Jesus said the word Samaritan. Because the Samaritans are the mortal enemies of the Jews, and the Jews are the mortal enemies of the Samaritans. They consider each other to be an abomination of what it meant to be a true worshiper of God. And so the Samaritan walks, and he sees the man beaten, bruised. Now, pause for a moment many people would say oh the Samaritan should have been the beat up one and then the Jewish person the, the Levite, the priest they could have been one that did the rescuing the saving, the loving but Jesus wants to help them understand in the kingdom of God there is no ism too great right there is no racism, there is no classism there is no sexism it is, it is we are all one in Christ right we have been re we, the, the same blood that covers me covers you, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, it doesn't matter what country you come from, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter 
And so the Samaritan sees this person, and the Bible tells us that he, he, he picks him up and he cares, carries him to the nearest town. And there, the Bible tells us, Jesus says, he begins to pour in the oil and wine, which is representative of the Holy Spirit and healing. He begins to bandage his wounds, and he goes to the innkeeper, and he says, listen, here's the money I owe you for the time we spent here, and here's some extra money. If this man needs anything, or if he needs to stay some extra time, please charge it to my account. I'm good for it. I've got it. And then Jesus asked the crowd, he said, who is my neighbor? And essentially, anybody, but especially those in need. Now, what's crazy about this story is that we often read it and we often preach it and we often think of it in the sense of, oh, we need to be good Samaritans, right? We need to be men and women of God that when we're living life and we're walking down the road, especially if we're on our way to church, if we see somebody in need, we stop and we help them because that's what Jesus told us to do. But that's not what Jesus is showing us most of all in this story. What he's really showing us is a picture of ourselves. You see, each and every one of us were beaten, bruised, poor, and naked, left hurt by the works of sin in our life and in this world. And Jesus stepped out of heaven and gave up his rights as the Son of God became a human being, put on a robe of flesh, and walked on this earth as a mortal man. He lived a perfect and sinless life, and he allowed himself to be betrayed by those closest to him, where he was then beaten and bruised, where he took upon himself the stripes that were meant for you and I and the cross. And he put on himself the sin of all humanity. And in essence, what he did in that process is he picked us up and he paid a debt that we could never pay for ourselves. You see, he's our good Samaritan. He's the one that stopped and paid attention to our need and said, I can do something about that. I can help you. And that's why we're here today. We're not here today because we're good people. We're here today because we are loved by a good God. And I'm loved by a good God, not because I'm good, but because he's good. You see, this man, he couldn't even ask for help. We didn't even know we needed helping. But Jesus went out of his way gave of himself and rescued us from a faith that we could not change. That's real love. And Jesus told his disciples, freely you have received, now go freely give. And that's why we're not going to treat the rich person better than we're going to treat the poor person. It's because they are both equally loved by God and they are also loved by each one of us. Because we don't love others because of what they may give us. We love others because we've been loved even when we didn't deserve love. We don't give grace to others because because we think they deserve it. We give grace because we've been given grace when we didn't deserve it. 
We don't give mercy because, because we're such good, merciful people. We give mercy because God gave us his mercy even when we least deserved it. And so therefore, who am I to hold back the gift that God has given me? Freely you have received. Now go freely give. So Lifehouse, let's be a church that is committed, not just in the, in the scope of a worship service or in the scope of outreaches, but in our everyday lives. When we go to school, when we go to work, when we spend time with our families, a church, a people, a men and women who are committed to reaching the, the helpless, the hungry, and the hurting, because we have been helpless, and we have been hurting, and we have been hungry. You may not physically have ever been hungry, but you've been hungry for something more. You know what it's like to thirst for purpose. You know what it's like to thirst for something greater. And every person you've ever met, and every person you will ever meet, if they don't know Jesus, they might just be one conversation, one loving, grace-filled, mercy-filled, love-filled conversation away from finding new life in Christ. We've all, we've all been in those places where we just needed somebody. Maybe today, maybe today that is you. Just right where you're seated with every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe today you say, Pastor Drew, I feel like I'm stuck in a ditch. Like that man in that story of the Good Samaritan. I feel like, I feel like I'm just struggling. I've been going to things. I've been going to food. I've been going to a person. I've been going to a TV screen or a phone screen. or Maybe I've been going, I don't know, you've been, You've been going to something besides Jesus to fulfill a desire within you. Whether you're looking for comfort or peace or just to forget the problems or the pain. Today, Jesus is on the road and he's walking by and I believe with all my heart that he wants to help you get out of the rut that you're in. And if that's you today and if I can pray for you, would you just right now lift your hand high in there so I can see you and pray for you? I see you, buddy. I see you, friend. I see you. I see you. I see you. All across the room, I see you, sweetie. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do something. I know it may be a little uncomfortable, but if you just lifted your hand, I want you to come to this altar. And as you come, I'm going to ask our prayer team to come behind you believe the Lord with you. Come to this altar now. This is how you know if you, if you mean it or not. It's easy to raise a hand. It's easy to say, yeah, that's me. But listen, sometimes you have to step out of what's easy and what's comfortable. this morning to worship would you pray for those that are gathered up here would you pray that God would help you become more attentive than you've ever been before for those in your life that are in need that those that God would bring along your in your path that he's placed there because he's given you something and they need what you have would you pray that you would be used by God to truly not in a cliche way 
but in an authentic way to show this world just how loved and just how valued they are. Not just by God, by you. Come on, let's worship for a few moments. Forsaken, and I'll always be forgotten. No matter what I do, it's not enough. But then I heard a voice as it opened up the heavens, reminded me of who I've always been. I am your beloved. Bought me with your blood, and on your hand you've written out my name. I am your beloved, one the Father loves. Mercy has defeated all my shame. There's no accusation.
hands right now. Father, I just thank you for these men and women, these children, for everyone in this room, giving themselves to you, to live their life for you, to be changed by you. God, freely we have received. Now let's go and freely give of this changed life. For those who today have felt like they've just been stuck in a rut, that Jesus, that you will be the one who sets them free, that you will be the one who shows them there's a better way. And God, that they will walk in this newness of life because of all you've done in them and are doing through them. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Hey, we're transitioning to baptisms. If you are, please, to the best of your ability, don't leave. I just want to say real quick, uh, if you today, if you weren't planning on getting baptized, but you want to be baptized, when we, when we do baptisms, what that is, it's showing the world Hey, the old me is dead in Christ. The new me, however, is alive and been made brand new in Jesus. And so today, maybe you weren't even planning on being baptized, but guess what? Everybody say what? We have towels. We have clothes. We have underwear. We have everything you need. If you want to get baptized today, you just come on up here and let us know, and we will be glad to baptize you. So as we baptize these three individuals this morning and anybody else who decides to show up, I want you to clap for every single one of them like Tennessee just beat Alabama, okay? All right. This is Connor. Come on up. Lord of your life. All right. Are you ready to be baptized, buddy? I'm going to take this shirt off, y'all. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah.
tell you, this might contradict Pastor Drew's message today, uh, but you are my favorite. All of you. Lifehouse is my favorite. That is my favorite. Jesus and worship are my favorite. And that is not favoritism, that is joy. And it is our job to go out that door where it says exit and leave this building and help other people encounter that joy. Get that today when you leave this place. Is that joy that you feel, that pulling up out of a, of a gutter or a ditch that you may have gotten today. Someone else needs that. Go make them your favorite today because someone hasn't and they think no one wants to. Can we do that, Lifehouse? All right, let me pray for you. We'll get out of here. Father, we are so thankful for your love today, for your joy, for these lives that took a step and were raised to new life in you. And we are so excited for what they are going to do going forward out in their communities and in this world to share that joy, to share that love, and to show the world they are loved and highly valued. And I would just ask that you would remind all of us today of that love, of that joy, of that favor, and that we would go show other people that. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's celebrate and get out of here, Lifehouse.